Our sermon is on the character of Bathsheba, the person of Bathsheba. We've been working through the genealogy of Jesus, um, and we've been specifically looking at the one in Matthew and specifically looking at the females who are mentioned in Jesus's genealogy. So we had, we had Tamar, uh, who was, you know, had children with Judah. She was the forefather, Judah was the tribe, the, the forefather of the tribe of Judah. And Tamar, uh, you know, bore children with him. We had Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, uh, kind of when the walls, you know, came tumbling down, uh, kind of thing. She helped the Israelite spies. We have Ruth, the Moabite, uh, refugee, essentially, that, that uh, marries Boaz in the nation of, of Israel. So we've looked at those three women the last three weeks. Today we're looking at Bathsheba. Next week we're looking at Mary. Um, we've all, we've all, I think we've all heard the story of, of David and Bathsheba. I mean, we, pre- it was, we did a sermon on it here a few years ago when we were working through the life of King David. Um, but that sermon, as you know, probably like most sermons or most like, attention that's given to the story of David and Bathsheba, looks a lot at the person of David kind of David's character development, what that story kind of represented in David's life and kind of how, you know, he ultimately repented of that sin. And, you know, you can kind of look at, um, you know, Psalm 51 to see kind of how David processes and internalizes and responds to this incident. But I wanted to give attention this morning to Bathsheba and to kind of look at this story from her perspective, maybe try to understand what she was experiencing through this uh, episode in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through, through 12. So, uh, turn to Matthew 1, put your finger in 2 Samuel 11 through 12. I'll read Matthew 1 and then we'll pray and then we'll get to, get to work. Picking up where we left, last week, left off last week in the genealogy, we see Obed is the father of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David the king. And David the king was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask you to come here. And, and meet with us this morning. We ask you, Lord, to illumine our hearts so that we can read your word and hear from you. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would encourage us in the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear from you and to respond rightly to you with, with faith and obedience. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, flip to Second Samuel, uh, chapters 11 and 12. Uh, the, the, the author of Matthew makes a point in the genealogy. He says, you know, uh, the, the, David was the father of Solomon, not by Bathsheba, specifically, but by the wife of Uriah. He uses that specifically to, like, draw attention to the fact that this thing that David, David did was wrong. David took another man's wife, and that was the, the woman that he, you know, would, would father a child with. And so, you know, we can... We can only speculate, you know, uh, speculate about the, the state of affairs with Bathsheba and Uriah's marriage prior to this episode. I don't see any reason, uh, reading through the Bible, to think that it was anything other than good and, and happy and healthy. By all accounts, Uriah was a godly man. He was a faithful man. He was a, a, you know, a, a brave and valiant warrior, one of the best, one of the top 30 warriors in the entire nation of, of Israel. So he is a, a brave, valiant warrior. And Bathsheba was, uh, you know, by all accounts, a, a faithful wife. And that was their life, right? A, a, a military officer, warrior, and a military wife who stays home while her husband is often heading out on, on deployments and things like, like that. So Second uh, Samuel 11 verse 1 says, In the spring of the year... The time when kings go out to battle, 
David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So everyone else is fighting. All of the other kings go out with their armies to go fight and lead their armies into battle. And David elects to stay at home and to just, you know, I mean, he's, he's a man of means. He has nothing. He's not, not working. He's, you know, he's just kind of lazing around, eating, drinking. I mean, as we'll see in the next, next paragraph, staying up late, sleeping in, verse 2. Uh, it happened late one, after, so late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. So he's, he's sleeping or, or lounging or lazing around late into the day, late in the afternoon, and he gets up of his couch and he walks to the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and said, uh, Who is it? And, she, and someone said, uh, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Right, so, so right out of, like David does not, he no longer has plausible deniability, right? He's informed right out of the gate. This is a married woman. This is her father. This is her husband. Don't, you know, she's off limits. If you, you know, if you take, you know, if you go and sleep with her, you are sinning against her and you are sinning against her husband and against her, her father. And David doesn't care. Verse four, David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Again, David is the, king of a, of a, you know, a huge nation, a prosperous nation. David's a rock star. He rose into the ranks of, of royalty in the nation by being a valiant warrior, you know, killing Goliath when he was just a boy. He kills this huge nine foot tall man, right? David is kind of like he, uh, you know, kind of operates above the law, essentially. He can do whatever he wants. No one refuses anything he asks. If anyone does refuse anything he asks, he could have them killed with no questions asked. And David summons Bathsheba. But he doesn't just summon her, because this word uh, where it says that uh, David sent and inquired about the woman, uh, she came to him, and, uh, and his messengers took her in verse 4. David sent messengers and took her. That word take uh, doesn't mean request. It doesn't mean like ask for, you know, for your company kind of thing. The word take means to steal. To seize, take possession of, retrieve, capture, carry off when armies would go and, and kill other armies and kind of take back the plunder, bring back the plunder to their nation. That's the same word uh, that, they, that they use, to take or steal or snatch. And so the Hebrew word seems to imply that, you know, that, that Bathsheba is taken very likely against her will. Um, because she, you know, these, these, you know, messengers from the king that work directly for the king and kind of, you know, operate with the authority of the king. They say, you are coming whether you like it or, or not. We've, you know, I've, I've heard this story taught, uh, several times. You may or may not have, right? Like King David and, and King David is kind of this well-intentioned, uh, you know, king who is like seduced or taken advantage of by this, uh, you know, wily, you know, seductive, manipulative, right? She like intentionally, you know, uh, gets into his line of sight and kind of does this seductive thing where she can catch his eye and get invited into his bedroom so that she can kind of, you know, almost like, you know, like a, a gold digger, right? Like I'm going to try to get someone wealthy to like, I'm going to, I'm going to have a child with them or be in a relationship with them where I can kind of get an upgrade based on their, uh, standard of, of, of life. The story seems based on the, the verbs that we see in the story and based on Nathan's, Description of the story in 2 Samuel 12 seems to 
look less like a, a seductive, wily woman taking advantage of, a, of an innocent man who is otherwise trying to you know, be godly. And it seems more like a very powerful, almost, uh, almost, almost infinitely powerful in terms of how he operates in the nation, man deciding that he wants a woman and just taking her. And, and, you know, not giving her any say in the matter and not giving her husband any say in the matter. Listen to how Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, so I think we made a few slides forward, Jesse. 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through uh, 4, listen to how he describes it in, in a, a metaphor. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and Nathan came to David and said to him, There were two men in a certain city. One was a rich man and the other was a poor man. And the rich man had, had many flocks and many herds, but the poor man had nothing but one ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children, and he used, to, he used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup, and this lamb would lie in his arms. And it was like a, a daughter to him. Bathsheba is described as, as an, a vulnerable, innocent little baby lamb. Verse 4, now, the tr- now there came a traveler to the rich man, And this rich man was unwilling to take of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest. But instead he took, the same same verb that we saw about David taking Bathsheba in chapter 11, and he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Right? Nathan doesn't portray David uh, as kind of this innocent man falling prey to, to a seductive, temptress woman, Bathsheba. He portrays it as theft, as as kidnapping and as trafficking, and ultimately as slaughter. The rich man takes what's not his. He has no regard for what he is taking, no regard for the person that he is taking it from. He just takes because he can. Bathsheba is likened to a, a lamb, an innocent, vulnerable lamb who's minding her own business um, and, and is, is taken. So again, uh, you know, we're, we're not entirely sure what all the motivations were and kind of everything that's going on inside of Bathsheba and inside of, of David. But it stands to reason that Bathsheba was minding her own business, keeping her home in order, waiting for her soldier husband to return from battle. She's bathing uh, after kind of her monthly time of uncleanness, uh, which we can see back in uh, 2 Samuel in, in the, a couple slides back. You'll see. She's kind of purifying herself after this uncleanness, which is required by the law. Bathsheba, by all accounts, appears to be a, a good wife a good citizen, a good, you know, obeying the law of God, and she's taken from her home. And she's taken into the kidnap, or she's taken into the presence of uh, this powerful king, powerful King David. She's kidnapped, essentially. And then David, uh, and then David lays with her, right? She, she, he sent messengers, they took her, she came to him, and he lay with her. Um, sounds, sounds, Strikingly like how you would how we would define sexual assault or, or rape today. All right, there's no no language that David specifically used physical violence or force in the in the act of sleeping with with Bathsheba, but there was certainly a a massive power imbalance. There was certainly uh, you know coercion and abuse of authority. And uh, I think it's pretty clear that Bathsheba did not have any say in the matter. The implication is. Right? This is the king. This is what the king wants. You cannot say no. If you try to say no, things will go very badly for you. This is happening whether you want it or, or not. So David does this. He sends Bathsheba home. And Bathsheba finds out in relatively short order that she is, is pregnant. Which is now, now it's a big problem, right? Now, so 
You know, she knows that it's David's child based on how long uh, Uriah's been gone and based on her monthly cycle and things like that. David knows that it's his child and not Uriah's based on how long he's been gone. And so now Bathsheba kind of finds herself in this nightmare of a scenario where she was at home waiting for her husband to return from battle. The king summons her. The king assaults her. The king sleeps with her. Now she's pregnant by the king. She knows that the king has, you know, no, there's no bounds to what he might do, right? She knows that he, uh, you know, takes what he wants and, and doesn't regard, doesn't have any regard for who he's taking from. And so now she's probably worried that, you know, this king has a reputation that he probably wants to protect. Uh, everyone, you know, everyone thinks that he's this morally upstanding guy. He probably has a vested interest in making everyone continue to think that he's a morally upstanding guy. And so she's probably thinking, you know, there is no end to what David might do to kind of ensure that his reputation stays intact, whether it's, you know, uh, killing me or forcing me to terminate this pregnancy or, uh, or ultimately killing my, my husband, which is, which is what... What happens? Right, Bathsheba is totally vulnerable. She's totally at David's mercy. And David calls for Uriah. Verse 6. David sends word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when, when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David says to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Go spend time with your wife, right? Hopefully, hopefully you'll sleep with her and then you won't be alarmed or surprised or scandalized when you find out that she's pregnant. You'll think that it's your baby. Verse 8, and Uriah went out to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But instead of sleeping in his house, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants and he did not go down to his own house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his own house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Why do you not go down to your house? And Uriah says, the ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Why shall I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Right? My fellow soldiers that we are fighting and dying alongside of one another, they don't get to go home. They don't get to eat and, and drink and sleep with their wives. I'm not going to do it either. I'll sleep outside. Right? I'll, I'll go home to my wife when they come home to their wife. Uriah is an honorable man. And David tries again, right? Remain here today and tomorrow. I'll send you back. Uriah remains. The next day, David invites him into his presence and he gets him drunk. And then he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So David is trying a second attempt here. Eat and drink the finest food in the king's palace and drink the best wine and, and let your inhibitions down. And then maybe you will do this thing that I want you to do that you appear to be too honorable and too faithful to, to do. Uriah again, uh, you know, does not, he, he kind of does not yield to temptation. He resists it. Verse 14, in the morning, uh, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. All right, David makes arrangements for Uriah to be to be murdered. And he sends the, the orders to have Uriah murdered with Uriah himself, right? This is like almost ironic, almost like, uh, you know, it's, it's alarming. It's, it's, it's meant to be especially scandalous. And Joab, verse 16, Joab was besieging the city and he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. Joab is following orders 
And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. And then Joab sent and told David about the news and about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting of the king, and the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Later it says, when, when all of that happens, then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Right? Joab is, is thinking, uh, if we tell him that we incurred heavy losses in the battle, David will be mad. He'll be mad at the, the men that were killed. He'll be mad at, at the liability that the nation incurs because of it. But uh, as mad as David is about men dying, he will be happier to hear that Uriah is dead. Because he can handle all of the, the losses that he might incur on the battlefield, but, but he's got a situation that he cannot fix with Uriah and with, with Bathsheba. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had, had told him. Right, he tells him about the battle, he tells him about Uriah, and listen to David's response in verse 25. After David hears about all of, you know, about everyone taking advantage of, or, you know, about them gaining an advantage, driving them back, and killing all of his people, but then he hears at the end that Uriah is dead, David says, go, go tell this to Joab. Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your hand against the city and overtack, strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. David essentially says, you know, win some, you lose some, right? Some people die, some people live. What are you going to do? We're all fate's fool. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. That, that stinks to the head. It's very nonchalant, very un, unconcerned with the lives and deaths uh, of, of, his, of his men. Verse 26, and when Uriah heard that her husband, when the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, heard that her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. So again, right, we, we hear the story, we put ourselves in, in David's shoes, but it's worth, you know, like Bathsheba's situation continues to go from bad to worse to worse to worse, right? She is uh, victimized over and over again by King David, right? She's taken from her home into his presence, she's sexually assaulted, she's impregnated by David, and now her husband is, she's already kind of stressed out, her life has been thrown into shambles, she has to figure out, what am I going to do with this pregnancy, how am I going to explain it to my husband, what is going to to happen, this is a total disaster. Now on top of all of that, on top of the shame and embarrassment and and just the fear that she has, now the the same messengers knock on her door and tell her that her husband is dead and that he died in in battle. So now on top of fear and shame and and, and guilt and and despair, now there's uh, mourning and grieving and just deep uh, sadness and, and despair. But she still is pregnant, so she still has this issue that's not going away. She still has to figure out what to do with this pregnancy that's going to become public very soon. Verse 27, And David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. So now Bathsheba has been kidnapped, trafficked, assaulted, impregnated. Her husband has been murdered, and now she has to go and marry the guy who did all of that stuff to her. The guy who like murdered the guy that she wanted to grow old with and she wanted to raise a family with and she wanted to be faithful to. He has murdered that man and now she has to go and marry him. Now, now she has to sleep with him or, or, or whenever he wants to, she has to sleep with him. And whenever he decides that he would rather sleep with someone else, she has to go sleep in whatever room or bed he tells her, her to. 
Right? She's been completely victimized time and time and time again. Second Samuel 12, uh, Nathan comes to David. We just read this a few minutes ago. Nathan comes and tells David this story about, you know, a rich man who takes the ewe lamb from his poor neighbor, and David is furious, right? Uh, David responds at the end of the story, um, you know, he says, uh, you know, he's, it's the previous slide, Jesse, he says, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die because he did this thing, and he had no pity. And listen now, Nathan responds. Nathan says, David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into the arms, or into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, David, I would have given you, I would have added to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Why have you done what is evil in the sight of the Lord? David, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword uh, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you, David, you have killed Uriah with the sword of the Ammonites. You murdered Uriah, right? Uh, the, the Ammonites might have pulled the trigger, but you planned it, you loaded the gun, you cocked it and put it into their hand. And now, because of this, David, verse 10, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and you have taken the, rife, the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Right? David, you will, you will spend the rest of your life fighting and looking over your shoulder. You'll never enjoy real peace. You'll always be watching your back. You'll always be, you know, wondering if someone is coming to, uh, you know, betray you or attack you or fight you. That's, this is your lot in life now for the rest of your life. And uh, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. That happened. Right? Second Samuel 15 to 18, David's son Absalom uh, conspires against him to, to kind of usurp his authority and take him, take his throne away from him. Verse 11, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will, but, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. That happened too. The same son, Absalom, takes one of David's concubines, goes up to the roof of the, the palace, right, where everyone in the whole entire city can see him, and he sleeps with her, and it's kind of this, like, public act of defiance, and this public act that says, I'm the king now, David's not the king, if he were, he would stop me, he's not, so he can't, so I'm the king. And then Nathan says in verse 14, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. So that's the consequences that God tells David he's going to experience through Nathan. You're going to just deal with, with fighting and, and just with tension and chaos all your entire life. You're going to have someone uh, you know, betray you. You're going to have someone uh, do what you did, uh, but they're going to do it in, in view of every single person and this child that was born to you shall, shall die, which seems reasonable when you're look. You're, it, it seems like the, the punishment fits the crime. David has done this terrible, horrible thing, and here are the consequences that are, coming, uh, that are coming on him because of it. But the consequences aren't just coming on David, right? The child that God says is going to die because of David's sin is currently right now growing inside of Bathsheba, 
right? Bathsheba's carrying this son in her body, right? She's bonding with him. She's, she's emotionally invested in this child's well-being. She's preparing to, to mother this child and take care of him and, and disciple him, right? And so all of this sin that's already happened to, to Bathsheba, being taken and kidnapped and assaulted and her husband being murdered, she's trying to put that all behind her and just focus on raising this child, and now, in verse 17, the Lord afflicted the child, I'm sorry, uh, the, the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. And then in verse 18, on the seventh day, the child dies. So God says the child's going to die, the child does die. And so now the, the consequences and the effects of David's sin are not only, they're hitting David, they're falling heavy on David, but they're reverberating out through people that are close to David. And the person who experiences the worst of it is arguably Bathsheba. She's the one who has to carry this child. She's the one who has to give birth to this child. She's the one who, who mourns and grieves when this child dies. And in verse 24, David comforts his wife, Bathsheba, and he goes in, lays with her, and, she, and he, she bore a son, and his name is called Solomon. So at the tail end of this entire story, this episode with David and Bathsheba, you can kind of see a glimmer of God's faithfulness to Bathsheba, a glimmer of hope that God has not forgotten Bathsheba, that God is not unaware of or unconcerned with the plight and the suffering of Bathsheba because she, she ends up on the tail end of this entire story with a son, a son who lives, a son who's going to become the king of the entire nation of Israel. Now, I'd like to take a minute or two here to consider how we might apply this text like we've been doing with the other, with the other women, but specifically to do it looking at Bathsheba. Now looking, you know, cause we looked at David a couple of years ago and, and you know, the, 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 the application seems to be to, to repent of, of sin. Uh, you know, we kind of looked at Psalm 51 and we kind of looked at what it looks like to repent of sin and to try to, you know, uh, be restored to God after we sin against others. But when we look at Bathsheba, this seems to be a story that is more about what to do and how to respond or what happens when you are sinned against. You'll sin against others, but others will sin against you. People will take advantage of you, right? Bathsheba's story is evidence of the fact that living life in a fallen world means that you are going to be sinned against. You are going to encounter people in positions of power and authority, and they are going to, they're going to sin against God. They're going to sin against you. They're going to take what they want. They're going to pursue their own interests, even if it is at your expense. And because of sin, because of your sin and because of the sins of others, uh, the, the, you'll experience pain and suffering and loss and, and sadness. And Bathsheba shows us uh, you know, that this is inevitable, and she kind of gives us an opportunity to think about how we should respond when that happens. So I have just a few, a few exhortations for how to res- well, actually how not to respond uh, in the event of being sinned against by someone else. The first one is don't blame God, right? Here's Bathsheba. She's being faithful. She's going about her life. All of a sudden, someone takes advantage of her, sins against her, abuses her, assaults her, ruins her life. The temptation might be to say, God did this. This is God's fault, right? God doesn't love me. God messed up. There's no way that a good God would allow something like this to happen in my life. There's no way that God would allow this other person to succeed and thrive and allow me to suffer like this. It's God's fault. God is not good. And we're tempted to blame God for the sins of other people, right? God wanted them to sin against me in this way. God was pleased when they sinned against me in this way and when I suffer as a result, now, it's true that 
God is sovereign over everything. God, right? The Bible is very clear that God is in sovereign control of the entire world, that God is sovereign over sin. God permits sin so that his perfect will might be accomplished. Right? All of that's true. But the fact remains that God is good, and therefore God uh, shouldn't be blamed for the sins of other people. God hates sin, and he doesn't want it to happen. If we look at chapter 11, verse 17, it says, The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Right? David sins against Bathsheba. David rapes Bathsheba. David kills Bathsheba's husband. Was that sin? Yes. Did God allow it? Yes. But was God pleased that it happened? Did God want all of those terrible things to happen to Bathsheba? And the answer is no. God was displeased with David and with his behavior. When people sin against you, when people abuse you, assault you, right? God, God is not sitting in heaven smiling and laughing like some sadistic James Bond villain when his people suffer and when his people are sinned against and when his people are taken advantage of. God is not pleased by sin. He's sovereign over it. He's in control of it, but he's not to blame for it and he's not pleased by it. So the first thing is don't blame God when you're, you're sinned against. And the second one flows out of it, which is uh, don't uh, don't walk away from God. Don't blame God for what happens to you, but also don't walk away from God, right? So the next temptation is, right, not only am I going to blame God for what's happened to me, for this uh, experience that I've suffered, uh, but I'm going to, I'm going to, right, I, 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 I cannot, I refuse to believe in a God who would allow something like this to happen to me. If that's who God is, if God is the kind of God that would allow this terrible thing to happen, then I don't want anything to do with him. I don't want to spend eternity with God. I don't want to have a relationship with God. I'm just going to live my life for myself, on my own terms, pursuing my own agenda. And, and frankly, with respect to eternity, uh, I'll just ignore it. I'll cross that bridge when I get there. I'll hope for, for the best. I find this to especially be the case with people who are sinned against by those who claim to be Christians. Right? They, they, they're tempted to walk away from the faith, right? People who, who experience abuse and misconduct from people who claim to be Christians or people who have some sort of spiritual authority, right? If a, if a guy's abusing his wife and hitting her or threatening her, but then that guy's an elder or a deacon at his church or everyone thinks he's a great godly Christian man, but behind closed doors he's abusing his wife. Or if a, if a child is, is abused or molested by a priest or a youth pastor, right? Someone that they associate with God, someone that they think should treat them the way God wants them to be treated, right? If a person in a position like that takes advantage of it and abuses their power, does something illegal or inappropriate, right? That person would be tempted to, to walk away from the faith and never come. I can't say that I blame them. Ne never come back, right? If I were a child going to church and I was abused by a pastor or someone in authority, I would be tempted to leave the church, and, and not come back. So I, I, I understand the impulse. I'm just saying that God does not want his children to walk away from him and to sever their relationship with him on the basis of some sin that was committed against them by a wicked person who was not acting on behalf of God. God doesn't want you to punt your faith or, or walk away from him because someone else did something that God hates. So one, don't blame God. Two, don't walk away from God. Three, and this one's important, don't carry guilt and shame 
with you, right? When someone sins against you or abuses you or takes advantage of you, don't carry, right? God, God created all of us with a conscience, right? We're wired, we've been created and designed so that when we sin against others, we feel bad, right? Your blood pressure goes up, you flush, you get, you get hot, you start to get worried, right? When you sin against others, you're, you're wired, you're created and designed to recognize it and feel bad, right? And be convicted by the Holy Spirit of your sin. That conviction is designed to drive you to confess your sin and repent of it and, and come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness from it. That's how your conscience was designed to work, and that's, that's a good thing. But the wiring gets messed up a little, and, and uh, oftentimes when people are sinned against in very grievous, terrible ways, they're abused, they're molested, they're assaulted, they are the victim of someone else's sin. And again, the, the wiring gets messed up to where the abuser walks away guilt-free, sleeps like a baby, right? doesn't think about it again for the rest of his life, and yet the person who was abused and taken advantage of is left in shambles, right? They're, they're, they, they, were, they were the victim and not the aggressor, and yet they kind of refer back to this incident like it's their fault, like they did something to cause it. They're ashamed, they're guilty, and there's a sense in which the abuse kind of continues on and on internally and emotionally and psychologically. That's not how our consciences were designed and intended to work. Consciences were designed to make you feel conviction of sin when you sin against others, but not to make you feel guilt or shame or embarrassment when someone else sins against you. Right? You cut someone off in traffic, you're rude to someone, you say something you shouldn't have, you do something that's selfish and unloving, you should feel convicted by God. That's, that's done by design. When someone sins against you, God does not intend for you to feel bad about what they did. He doesn't intend for you to feel embarrassed about what they did. He doesn't intend for you to be ashamed or, or to feel guilty about what they did. God wants that person to feel those things so that they'll repent. And he wants you to be free of that burden of guilt. And In fact, Jesus died on the cross specifically to free his people from... not just, God, Jesus didn't just die on the cross uh, in order to, uh, you know help you be forgiven of the sins that you commit. He does. There, so there, there's, there's kind of all different kinds of things that were achieved at the cross, one of which is the doctrine of propitiation. To propitiate means to satisfy. So the doctrine of propitiation means that uh, at the cross, Jesus died for us and, and he satisfied, he propitiated the wrath of God. So God is no longer angry at you. You were formerly at enmity with God, and now you can be at peace with God. You can be reconciled to God. That's the doctrine of propitiation. It has a, a God word or a wrath word direction. But another doctrine is called expiation. The doctrine of exp to expiate means to remove. Propitiate means satisfy. Expiate means remove. The doctrine of expiation says that when Jesus died for his people on the cross, he removed their sin away from him. He expiated their sin away from him. He, he took their sin and he took all of the toxicity and all of the baggage and everything that comes with sin, Jesus takes it away from them. He takes it on himself on the cross. So God's wrath is propitiated, but our sin and all of the baggage and all of the effects of sin are expiated. Jesus removes it and takes it from us, which means if you've been abused, if you've been 
uh, taken advantage of, if you've been hurt and you feel like you've been stigmatized or you're ashamed or you don't want anyone to know about it, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for you so that you can be cleansed where you feel defiled, right? So that you can give all of that baggage and all of that toxicity, you can give it to Jesus. So you don't have to carry it around with you anymore. So don't blame God. Don't walk away from God. Don't carry all of the baggage that comes from sin and being sinned against. Don't carry it with you when Jesus wants to take it from you. And then finally, this one's important, especially you know considering just what's, what's happened in our culture for the last few years, last few decades. Don't do nothing. Right? If someone sins against you, takes advantage of you, abuses you, assaults you, hurts you, don't do nothing. Don't say nothing. Right? Tell someone. Tell a parent. Tell a friend. Tell an authority. Tell the police. Don't suffer in silence. And this is one that a lot of churches and a lot of denominations have gotten wrong for a long time. They've, they've, they've pulled a lot of verses out of context to essentially silence victims of abuse or intimidate victims of abuse, they'll say, oh, uh, you know, they'll take verses like, like 1 Peter 2 and Matthew 5 out of context and say, look, this is just your cross to bear, right? God is calling you to endure persecution in this way, so don't, you know, just keep, just keep on keeping on, try your best, and, uh, and just, just persevere in this abuse that you're in. Or they'll take uh, verses on marriage out of context and they'll say, Sorry, a wife that's being abused by your husband. You married him. You're stuck. It doesn't matter if he's hitting you. It doesn't matter if he's threatening you. It doesn't matter if he's abusing your children or committing adultery. You married him. You have to stay with him even if, you're at, even if you are at risk in your own home. Right? Or they'll say, you know, this guy's a, this guy's a celebrity pastor. Right? And he's, he has such an effective ministry and he's accomplishing so much for the gospel. And if you came forward about the abuse that you're experiencing at his hand, it would ruin his ministry. So keep quiet. Or they'll say, uh, this is a church matter and it's not a law enforcement matter, right? You're not, like, 1 Corinthians 6 says you're not allowed to report things like this to police. Just, just tell us. We'll handle it internally. Right? Maybe sign a non-disclosure agreement so that we can save face and let's all just kind of move on with our lives. There, there have been a lot of churches and a lot of denominations that have effectively denied justice to victims of abuse and assault. And those responses are not biblical and they're not good. They're, they're wicked. God loves justice and God wants justice. God, God wants justice for the perpetrators he wants them to be held accountable, and God wants justice for the victims. He wants them to know that their perpetrators have been punished in accordance with what they have, have done. And if a church is, is covering up abuse and sin, or if a church is silencing victims of abuse and sin, then that church is working against the purposes of God in the world. I looked up some statistics. I, I looked up some statistics on assault and abuse this week as I was thinking and meditating about 2 Samuel 11 and 12. This is a real problem. This is not something that, you know, we have the luxury of ignoring or not worrying about. One in three females have been the victim of sexual abuse. One in five males have been the victim of sexual abuse. The vast majority of those are children when they are abused. 
More than 90% of individuals with a developmental delay or a disability will be sexually assaulted at least once in their lifetime. 30% of sexual abuse is never reported. And a typical pedophile will commit 117 sexual crimes in their lifetime. Right, the problem of abuse and assault, taking advantage of others, is not something that we have the luxury of ignoring. It doesn't matter if it's committed by a male or a female. It doesn't matter if it's committed against a male or a female. It doesn't matter if it is committed against an adult or a child. It is a problem that is far too prevalent and far too destructive for us to have the luxury of ignoring. And it's certainly not something that the church should ever help cover up or become complicit in. God calls his people to, to advocate for those who are the most vulnerable. He calls his people to stand with them, to recognize their humanity, to recognize their dignity, and to speak up for them. That's what we do about other things. That's what we do about abortion. That's what we should also be doing about abuse and assault. Right? God help us if the church abandons our responsibility to side with victims and vulnerable people and instead chooses to side with people who are in positions of power, who are abusing their power and taking advantage of others. If you've been the victim of abuse or if you ever are the victim of abuse, don't do nothing. Tell someone. Tell someone that you trust. Tell, someone, tell the police. Right? God does not want you to suffer abuse in silence. God wants justice for the victims of abuse, and God wants accountability for those who perpetrate abuse against others. Jesus died for you so that your sin could be forgiven if you trust in him, and Jesus died for you so that all of the, the baggage and all of the guilt and all of the shame and all of the fear that comes with being sinned against so that that can all be taken from you and given to to Jesus, so that you don't have to carry it yourself. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is a heavy topic to consider. The topic of um, the abuse of power, people in authority, um, you know, taking advantage of people that are uh, vulnerable. And we want to take it seriously. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came here at the incarnation, that you were born as a baby and lived life as a human being here in our presence to put an end to sin and injustice like that. We thank you, Lord, that you died to forgive our sin and to secure our salvation. We thank you that you died for us to unburden us from all of the toxic effects of sin and to cleanse us where we feel defiled, and to make us new, and to make us clean. Lord Jesus, help us to trust in you, help us to walk with you, and help us to enjoy the new life that you offer to us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.